Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society, and I am a host on the channel. And today I am pleased and honored to be talking to Professor Robert Dalek, renowned historian of 20th century American history and past winner of the Bancroft Award. Uh, We are speaking today on his latest book, Franklin D. Roosevelt, A Political Life. Welcome, Professor Dalek. Nice to be with you. Uh, Professor Dalek, um, what is the primary thesis of your book? Well, you know, I've written it in a very, uh, in a sense, in a very contemporary vein. There's been, of course, <clears throat> a great deal written about uh, Franklin Roosevelt and about uh, the Great Depression and uh, World War II, but Roosevelt has kind of faded away, and I think uh, there's a younger generation of people who don't know much about him, and I wanted to uh, get them acquainted with what a great, effective leader in the country, uh, a great, effective president looked like. And I think uh, Roosevelt very much fills that bill. This is not to say that I was going to endow him with sainthood because uh, he had his flaws and uh, he had uh, his enemies. But uh, by and large, he's now remembered as one of the three great presidents of American history, along with George Washington and uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, On the same vein, uh, given his significance in 20th century American history, as you say, probably the greatest American, by no doubt, the greatest American president in the 20th century, why do you think uh, there has been so few biographies, biographical studies written of him, particularly since um, uh, the peering out of Schlesinger's three volumes? Yeah. Well, because people in this country have uh, somehow a diminished interest in history. I don't think there's uh, nearly as many requirements in the schools, in the high schools, or even in uh, college that uh, they have to take uh, American history. Uh, There's great emphasis on global history, on uh, the history of the world. But American history has uh, lost some of its hold on the uh, uh, imagination of uh, educators and uh, I think of young people as well. Now, currently, I teach for Stanford University in Washington, D.C., and I find the students are extremely uh, smart, very, very bright, but uh, they don't know a great deal about history. And uh, so my objective is to educate them. But I think there is a kind of uh, loss of uh, historical understanding. And in part, I think it helps explain why we end up with a president like Donald Trump, who himself, I think, is uh, largely ignorant of the country's history. Uh, Unfortunately, very much the case. But uh, getting back to Roosevelt, uh, how would you say uh, his, uh, for lack of a better expression, using an expression from the British Prime Minister H.H. Asquith, how would you say his, quote, effortless sense of superiority, was that acquired at birth or was it acquired by life, or or in his case, early life? Well, I think it was by both. That after all, he was a patrician. He was born into a, a wealthy 
uh, family that uh, became even more famous as he grew up because of his distant cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, who had uh, become president and served for uh, a little under eight years after uh, William McKinley uh, was assassinated and Theodore Roosevelt was vice president and succeeded to the office. But uh, Theodore Roosevelt was adored by uh, many, many people, and uh, he even had a, a teddy bear named after him. So uh, there was a, a family uh, a connection, and the Roosevelt name was uh, magic in the uh, certainly uh, the early years of the first half of the uh, 20th century. And also, what I think propelled FDR was the fact that uh, when he was 39 years old in 1921, he came down with uh, infantile paralysis, polio. And the next uh, 10 years, 11 years, were consumed in a struggle to uh, deal with his disability. Now, when he became president, who won the presidency in 1932, a lot of people thought he had recovered from that uh, uh, disease. In fact, of course, he was never able to walk again. And the only time in his entire presidency of 12 years that he ever made reference to his disability was when he gave a speech after he came back from Yalta, the Yalta Conference in uh, February 1945. And he spoke to a joint congressional session in which he said to them, I know you will forgive me for sitting down, for I've just returned from a voyage of 10,000 miles, and I carry 10 pounds of steel around each of my lower limbs. Now, there are no surviving photographs to uh, show that he was uh, so disabled and that uh, he would sit in a wheelchair, but he had, it gave him a kind of determination, a kind of fighting spirit to overcome this disability, and it communicated itself to uh, people in the country in the midst of that uh, terrible uh, economic collapse, the worst economic downturn in the country's history. And uh, uh, people thought, well, if Roosevelt had recovered from his disability, we can recover from this depression. So I think psychologically, it gave him a connection to the public that uh, helped enormously to uh, make him popular and uh, create appeal to uh, millions of people in the country. Actually, I think, if, unless I'm mistaken, wasn't there out there um, an older interpretation which um, posited that uh, the disease uh, polio, uh, infantile paralysis, which crippled Roosevelt, had the unintended effect of, quote, humanizing him, unquote, and making him more capable of empathy with the lower orders of American society than was previously the case and sort of uh, changing his personality. I don't quite sense that you buy that interpretation. Is that correct? Well, you know, I, I think it's fair. I think that is fair that <clears throat> I don't know to what degree, you know, this uh, uh, affected him. But certainly in his early years, he was a bit of a snob. He came from, uh, as I said, this uh, patrician class, and uh, he became a politician. And of course, so many of the politicians in those days were part of the uh, recent immigrants to the United States, uh, the Italians, the Irish, and uh, he was a man with a, a sense of great superiority. But I think it's fair to say that the polio humanized him and made him that much more sympathetic to human suffering and to uh, uh, the needs of those who were uh, the least fortunate in, in the country. And of course, the thing about the New Deal that I've always emphasized is that <clears throat> it didn't end the Depression because we know it was industrial mobilization beginning in 1939 uh, for World War II that really sparked and spurred the uh, economy forward. But <clears throat> the great achievement of the New Deal 
was to humanize the American industrial system. It created Social Security, uh, unemployment insurance, the workers and hours law, that uh, limited number of hours, minimum wage, you see. And there was public housing that was part of the New Deal. So there were a host of of programs that uh, WPA and the PWA and the National Youth Administration seized. Conservation Corps uh, out to help people uh, struggle through the depression, and so uh, it really uh, created a welfare state that, of course, is now uh, being challenged in many ways by this uh, current uh, Trump administration. You see, but of course, uh, in the past there have been attempts to privatize Social Security, and this has uh, failed miserably. Uh, unemployment insurance is uh, not going to go away. Uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that Roosevelt created to guarantee that uh, you wouldn't lose your uh, money in a bank account, uh, all these uh, remain on the books and uh, make us uh, a more humane society. And so I think there was that uh, greater degree of humanity which uh, was brought uh, not just to him, but to uh, the whole country from as, as uh, the polio was a, uh, maybe a spark plug for this. Now, would it be correct um, to assume that you do not agree with uh, Richard Hofstadler uh, characterization or famous characterization of Roosevelt in his book, The American Political Tradition, uh, as, quote, the patrician is opportunist? No, I would agree with that, too. In fact, you would. And I presume, actually, did you study with Hofstadler? I did. He was my Ph.D. mentor, Ah. and uh, I took his doctoral seminar at Columbia, and we became friends. And uh, I knew him as more than just a teacher. He was uh, my friend and mentor in many ways. And uh, I think he he was right that Roosevelt was a pragmatist. He was someone who understood that uh, you could not be rigid. You see, he, he was responding in part to Herbert Hoover, who, of course, had been so rigid in response to the Great Depression and thought that the old economic uh, uh, principles would apply here, that the uh, country would make uh, an economic comeback uh, through its free enterprise system. And, uh, you know, one of the slogans of that the Hoover administration was prosperity is right around the corner. Well, you know, it uh, was ruinous to uh, Hoover. And as uh, someone said to Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover is a very good act to follow because the contrast with Roosevelt's uh, flexibility and pragmatism, Roosevelt compared himself to a Uh, a quarterback on a football team and he said we try one play if it doesn't work we move on and uh, try something else and that was uh, in in striking contrast to the way in which uh, Herbert Hoover proceeded Uh, and actually that uh, example brings up the following question which is could not it could not uh, be said that Roosevelt's uh, success in politics was partially a result of good luck. The yes. first example yes. that comes to mind is that uh, running as a Democrat in 1910, which was one of probably the five or six best years in terms of uh, Democratic, the Democratic Party in electoral terms, as well as his being, due to his um, disease, being sidelined in the 1920s, which was definitely not a, a decade uh, where the Democrats are very successful yep. in politics. Yeah, you know, I once wrote a book on uh, called Hail to the Chief, the Making and Unmaking of American Presidents. And one of the things I said that were uh, that was instrumental in helping to uh, uh, create or make for a successful presidency was luck, was fortune, was good, uh, good fortune. And I always quoted uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, who said, uh, give me generals who know something about the uh, strategy and tactics, but better yet, give me generals who are lucky. See, and uh, uh, yes, luck was significant. Roosevelt was 
the right man in the right place uh, at the right time. And uh, his opportunities were there to uh, uh, lead the country out of its morass. And of course, the same was true with uh, the coming of World War II. Roosevelt never would have had a third term if it weren't for, uh, and fourth term if it weren't for World War II, because uh, his second term from uh, 1937 to 1941 was uh, something of a bust compared to his first term. Uh, At the start of the second term, he proposed the uh, court packing plan, and uh, he never was able to get that law passed by Congress, and uh, it created a, a sense that he was arbitrary and dictatorial, and uh, he misled the public by saying, oh, the justices are uh, overwhelmed by uh, the demands on them and the amount of business they have to take care of, and we need to expand the court. That wasn't true. What he wanted, of course, was to expand the court so that he could put uh, liberal justices on the court, which would then favor him. There had been some court decisions that overturned his uh, Agricultural Adjustment Administration, the AAA, and his uh, NIRA, National Industrial uh, Recovery Administration, and uh, those were at the heart of the early original New Deal, and uh, he wanted to assure that uh, he would get favorable rulings from the court. And of course, then he tried in 1938 to purge the Democratic Party of its conservatives, particularly those conservative Democrats across the South. And uh, he lost uh, all those races except for one in New York where he defeated a a conservative uh, Democratic congressman. And so by 1940, uh, I think he would have uh, had to step down and uh, give up after two terms. But uh, along came World War II in 1939. And uh, as the old cliche goes, uh, people didn't want to swap horses in midstream. And uh, so they stuck with Roosevelt. The same was true in 1944. Uh, he knew that at that point, if the war were over, uh, he would not win again, and he might not have run again. But with the war still on, people were eager to uh, keep him in office. In fact, I found that he talked to uh, this distant cousin of his, uh, Margaret Daisy Suckley, who was quite close to him, and he would confide in her. He'd say things to her like, Margaret, I tell you this, and I know you won't repeat it to anyone else. But one of the things he told her was that if he won a fourth term, he would only serve for a year, and that the war would be over by then, and he would resign and turn the presidency over to his vice president, who was Harry Truman, and uh, he wanted to head an international peace organization. So uh, he was realistic about these uh, political uh, opportunities, and he was an opportunist and uh, in the best sense of that word. In your study, it's interesting that after his time at Harvard, there is no mention of any books read by Roosevelt or any intellectual interests. Did he have any? And if so, what were they? Well, you know, he did. He was not an intellectual. He was not someone who uh, learned uh, by book reading. I mean, I'm sure he read some books, but uh, this was not his primary way of uh, taking an intelligence. But he surrounded himself with uh, what David Halberstam later called on the Kennedy, the best and the brightest. And Roosevelt had that too. He had these people from uh, from Harvard, from Columbia University, uh, uh, what he felt were the best uh, minds in the country. And of course, when he uh, became president, he had something around him called the Brain Trust, which was uh, made up of uh, uh, very smart uh, academics who had written about society and about politics, and uh, he relied on them. He learned a great deal of uh, what he enacted through conversation. 
he was a, uh, uh, he would absorb the uh, the discussions and the ideas that these uh, people put before him and he did a lot of that when he was a governor of uh, New York uh, where he served for uh, four years from 1928 to 1932 and uh, he uh, uh, so he had that unique quality to uh, you know I've told students over the years, nobody could teach you how to be a really effective politician. I think it is instinctual. And you see, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, FDR had it. Uh, Harry Truman demonstrated that in his 1948 upset uh, election victory. Ronald Reagan had that uh, ability. John Kennedy had it. And uh, so, and of course, to give the devil his due, Donald Trump has demonstrated some of that because not only did he uh, command an audience as a uh, television and radio, but also he's used this new uh, means of communication called tweeting and uh, social media. So uh, that's, I think, was a, uh, a significant part of, uh, of what explains Roosevelt's success. Do you adhere to the uh, thesis that there were two New Deals, the first one which was corporatist and relatively conservative from 1933 to 1934, and the second New Deal which was more pro-labor and progressive uh, yeah, from 35 yeah. onwards? Yeah, I, th I think it's fair to uh, describe it that way in the sense that Again, we come back to the point he was opportunistic, he was pragmatic, and of course, in 1934, the uh, uh, result of those congressional elections was to uh, put into office people who were left of center, uh, that people were uh, very receptive to the idea of using federal authority to combat the depression. Now, Roosevelt, of course, had done some of that, but he was uh, somewhat restrained about it all. And of course, even in that second term, he wanted to reduce the country's uh, debt, uh, and he was no Keynesian who, of course, preached the idea that it was deficit spending that could uh, spur the economy and get the country out of the Depression. And uh, Roosevelt cut back on uh, programs and budgets in 1937. And, of course, we then had a uh, recession in 1938. And, of course, what cured that was the massive spending uh, to build the American military, you see. So, but there was a, a more uh, uh, left impulse after that, uh, uh, those 1934 elections, which demonstrated that the country in its voting had uh, moved to the uh, to the left. And so in 35, you get the Wagner Act, which uh, legitimizes the existence of uh, uh, labor unions. You get the, the Social Security law. You got something called the uh, Soak the Rich Tax Bill, which was a, a, a pretty uh, uh, confiscatory uh, tax law in some ways. And of course, people don't remember that when John Kennedy became president in uh, uh, 1961, the highest bracket uh, uh, of the federal tax stood at 91%. 91%. And uh, Kennedy tried to cut that, and of course, he never got that bill through, but Lyndon Johnson did, and they cut it back to 71%. So now, you know, in recent years, it's been at 39%. So uh, these things change. You know, somebody once said the only constant in history is change. And, uh, uh, and if you're going to be a good politician, you have to be receptive to that. In the book, you seem to suggest that the failure of the World Economic Conference in the summer of 1933 was not an important event. Why? Well, in in the sense that uh, uh, the world was anything but prepared to come together in a uh, coherent response to the worldwide depression. And what is more, in the United States, 
the uh, keynote of that moment was economic nationalism, not economic internationalism, but nationalism. And the political climate was such that the country was decidedly isolationist, uh, pacifist, uh, nationalistic. And so it just wasn't going to get to first base even. And uh, Roosevelt saw that pretty quickly. And of course, he uh, dumped that conference. And uh, he had, in foreign affairs, he had a great struggle because uh, equal to the struggle he had with overcoming his own personal disability and uh, getting through the depression. Uh, the country was isolationist. It had reverted to the old notion of uh, America first and uh, international agreements are a poor idea. It was a reaction against the, uh, the result of World War One, and uh, the sense that it was a pointless war. And of course, there was uh, what was known as the Nye Committee hearings in 1934, which argued that uh, uh, we had been drawn into that First World War by munitions makers and bankers who had lent money to allies, and they wanted the allies to win so that they could uh, pay back the debts. But uh, uh, Roosevelt remained an internationalist uh, in the Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, sense of that word. And even though he would sign into law the uh, neutrality bills of the 1930s, which were really laws to try and keep us out of World War One, and they were so outdated as we moved toward World War Two. But Roosevelt understood when he re ran for re-election in 1936 that the country was isolationist, it was pacifist, and he gave a famous speech in upstate New York at Chautauqua, New York, in which he uh, said, I've seen war, uh, I've seen men come out of the line gassed and bleeding. He said, I hate war, Eleanor hates war, uh, America hates war. And, uh, you know, he was catering to this uh, uh, antagonistic uh, view of uh, what had happened to us in uh, world affairs. And, of course, it was then moved the country toward an understanding of the fact that we could not be isolationist anymore, that the world had shrunk, and that with the growing power of uh, aviation and capacity to deliver uh, uh, bombs to distant cities, that uh, America could not remain uh, detached from world affairs. And uh, yet, as I just said, uh, he uh, subscribed to these neutralist and isolationist ideas in the 30s because it reflected uh, the public mood at the time. So from your reading, he could not, in fact, have been more forceful in trying to get a modification of neutrality legislation after 1937. Yeah, I think, it, it, well, he tried with something called the quarantine speech in 1937 to... Uh, <clears throat> encourage the country to understand that there was a need to uh, quarantine aggressors, as he put it. And when the journalist asked him, what did this idea of a quarantine, you're going to uh, use economic sanctions against, it was really aimed at Japan, which had, of course, annexed Manchuria in 1931, 32, and then uh, had begun a, uh, uh, an invasion of northern China uh, in uh, the mid-30s, and Roosevelt was aiming at, at the Japanese. But the American attitude in response to that quarantine address was that uh, we don't want to use economic sanctions. Uh, we certainly don't want to use any military uh, power against uh, Japan, or we don't want to get involved in Europe squabbles. It's the same old stuff. And uh, arguments that Hitler and the Nazis were a, a, a worldwide menace uh, fell flat to most people in the United States. And, uh, uh, and in fact, when Chamberlain appeased Hitler and the famous uh, Munich settlement in 19, Roosevelt sent him a telegram saying, good man, see. And, but at the same time, behind the scenes, he urged his military chiefs 
to arrange to build 15,000 fighter planes a year. And they said, what will you do with them? Because they knew the country wasn't going to, wasn't about to go to war of any kind. And uh, he wanted to sell them to Britain and France so they could stand up to uh, uh, Germany. Now, um, staying with uh, foreign affairs, in a review of your earlier book, Franklin D. Roosevelt, American Foreign Policy, Akira Erie stated in, um, uh, in the American Historical Review that you viewed uh, Roosevelt as, quote, a realpolitiker, unquote. Do you still yes. hold to that opinion? Oh, yeah, very much so. Because, you know, during World War II, the principal attitude in the country was what one can describe as a reversion to Wilsonianism, uh, to universalism. They wanted to see, uh, at the end of the war, a world which subscribed to uh, an international peace organization. Uh, you didn't have to call it the League of Nations anymore. Of course, uh, Roosevelt and Churchill agreed that it should be called the United Nations. But uh, there was a famous book published in 1943 by Wendell Wilkie, who had been Roosevelt's uh, opponent in the 1940 election. He was a moderate uh, internationalist Republican. And Roosevelt sent him on a world tour in uh, the late uh, period of 42, early 43. And Wilkie came back from that uh, world jaunt and wrote a book called One World. And it was published in March of 1943 and overnight became the best selling, uh, the greatest selling nonfiction book in American history to that point. See, And the theme of that book was that inside of every foreigner is an American waiting to emerge that uh, uh, people everywhere wanted to be like us. And Henry Luce, the conservative publisher of Time and Life and Look, he published an article which said, for example, the Russian people are just like us. They think like us, they dress like us, uh, they laugh like us, uh, and they even have an NKVD, their secret police, which is very similar to our FBI. See, the whole idea was that the world was going to become Americanized and that, as Lou said, this would be the American century. See, now Roosevelt knew better. He understood that spheres of influence, power politics were not going away. And though in public, he talked about the idea that uh, the allies at the end of World War II would essentially be abolishing those old uh, international uh, ways of doing business, and that uh, he he was subscribing to uh, a new world body called the United Nations, and the idea of the four policemen, uh, U.S., Russia, Britain, China, that uh, we would police the world and assure against uh, aggression anywhere. And uh, these were very popular ideas. But Roosevelt remained a real politician. And the most striking evidence of it is that in 1944, Roosevelt had a conference with Winston Churchill in uh, Quebec, Canada. And they talked about post-World War II affairs. And they came down to Hyde Park, Roosevelt's uh, ancestral home. And there they signed an aid memoir, which said that they were going to hold back the secret of the atomic bomb from Stalin and the Soviets. Now, if they were so convinced that we were going to have a love fest with the Soviets at the end of the war, as most people hoped, believed in this country at the time, you see, why would he withhold the secret of the atomic bomb from uh, Stalin and uh, the uh, Kremlin? The point is, he didn't trust them. And he wanted this as a ace up his sleeve, you see. And when people pressed him 
to try and abolish spheres of influence and get the Russians out of Poland, you know, he would say, what do you want me to do? Go to war with the Russians? In other words, they were there. They had the power and they were going to continue to dominate Eastern Europe. His hope was that they would be more relaxed about allowing people in those countries to um, practice uh, self-determination in terms of self-government, but that they would agree to national security agreements that uh, assured the Soviets against a, another invasion through uh, Poland and uh, East Central Europe of, uh, of the Soviet Union. So Roosevelt, and the same with China. China was America's favorite ally, and in public, Roosevelt would praise Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang. She came to visit the United States in the winter of 1942-43, and he had a press conference with her, and the reporter said to him, Mr. President, will you be sending to China the uh, uh, war supplies that they're so eager to have. And Roosevelt said, gentlemen, we will do this just as fast as the good Lord will allow. And she piped up and said, Mr. President, I understand you have a saying in your country that the Lord helps those who help themselves. Well, Roosevelt turned beat red and he was angry. And he went back to the White House and saw his treasury secretary, Henry Morgenthau, and he said, Henry, get that bitch out of here. See, he was uh, skeptical and he knew that China might fall into a civil war at the end of the uh, uh, World War II. And in fact, in 1944, he sent a man named Patrick Hurley to China as his ambassador. Hurley was a, uh, a conservative Republican, an oil Oklahoma oil guy, and Roosevelt wanted him to try and negotiate a settlement between the uh, nationalists and the communists, you see. And if it failed and there were a civil war, Roosevelt would blame it on uh, Hurley, you see. He was always thinking in terms of domestic politics and what he had to do in order to assure the uh, uh, support of people in the country. Uh, going back to 1941, uh, in retrospect, wouldn't, wasn't it a mistake to uh, impose de facto uh, an oil embargo on Japan? Well, it was very anti-Japanese uh, at that point, and he was keen not to get into a war in the Pacific because they wanted to. He wanted to uh, give as much support as he could. To Great Britain. Of course, France was gone by then and had collapsed in 1940 and surrendered uh, to Germany. And uh, he thought that uh, a war in the Pacific would be very distracting. And uh, uh, But on the other hand, he felt compelled to uh, try and restrain the Japanese with uh, the oil and scrap metal embargoes, you see. Now, of course, the, the Japanese uh, had a conference and made a, a judgment, should we go to war uh, and gobble up uh, Siberia, the Soviets, the Russians are very vulnerable, because Hitler had invaded Russia uh, on June 22nd, 1941, or should we uh, attack and strike at our most uh, uh, fierce competitor in the Pacific and East Asia, the United States, and they decided to go after the U.S. because they saw America as an isolationist country, and if they destroyed much of our fleet at Pearl Harbor, which of course they did, uh, that the United States would turn tail and run. Well, of course, they, as Churchill said, uh, they did not understand that once you... Uh, stirred that uh, beast, it was going to uh, strike back, and it had a uh, huge ability and power to do it. And uh, who was it? Uh, Admiral Yamamoto, who uh, designed the Pearl Harbor attack, said that if the United States stays in the war for more than six months, Japan will lose because he understood the industrial might of the United States and its capacity to uh, produce. Uh, military supplies and uh, its population, which could field a, a huge 
a multi-million man army. And, uh, uh, and of course, that's what happened. In uh, his book, The Threshold of War, Waldo Heinrichs uh, posits that Roosevelt was deficient in um, allowing a modest Vivendi proposal, as it was termed, uh, in the Japanese negotiations between Hull and Nomura uh, to be, in essence, vetoed by um, the UK, China, and uh, the Netherlands. Do you think, in retrospect, yeah. that uh, Roosevelt should have uh, ignored their protest and gone ahead with uh, some type of um, temporary agreement with the Japanese? Well, you know, it, it certainly is uh, arguable that you could have done that. But, you know, it's hard to believe that the United States was going to keep out of that war uh, against Japan and ultimately against Germany and Italy. And, of course, we were fortunate in that we had the uh, code-breaking capacity called MAGIC. And uh, Roosevelt White House knew that after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, that several people around Roosevelt pressured him to now declare war on the other Axis powers, Italy and Germany. But he understood that if he did that, people were going to attack him as having uh, used the Pearl Harbor attack as a back door to the European war. And of course, there was later a book published by uh, Charles C. Tansel of Georgetown called Backdoor to War, in which he argued that Roosevelt knew this, the attack was coming and he just uh, wanted it to uh, occur so they could get into the European war, which is nonsense because if Roosevelt was a great Navy man, if he knew an attack was coming, would he have left so much of the fleet in Pearl Harbor? Now, as it was, we were lucky in the sense that the aircraft carriers were out in the Pacific on maneuvers. But he could have left one or two ships there, and that would have been enough to provoke us into the war. And uh, But the, the Japanese found all those battleships and cruisers lined up Pearl Harbor and uh, destroyed that uh, significant part of the fleet and so it was a genuine surprise and uh, uh, Roosevelt then of course uh, stood back from declaring war on Germany and Italy because he knew through the magic intercepts that the Germans and the Italians were going to declare war on us which they did on December 11th four days after Pearl Harbor and so uh, the United States then was able to go into the war as a unit. Now, uh, uh, there is now currently all this conversation in today's uh, newspapers about uh, the Korematsu decision and the uh, incarceration of the uh, 110 or 20,000 Japanese Americans, you see. And uh, uh, that was the product of, I think, of the way Americans were striking back against Japan for a humili humiliating defeat at uh, Pearl Harbor. And it was their way of uh, uh, responding uh, to what the Japanese had done because we were unable to uh, do much at that point. And in fact, uh, the two other things that happened were the uh, Doolittle do Raid on, uh, uh, on Tokyo, which uh, was didn't have any significant military impact, but it was humiliating for the Japanese because they had been promising their people that the home islands could not be struck by the Americans. But they, uh, uh, Roosevelt saw it as symbolically a, a hugely important way of uh, giving people in the United States a sense of uh, striking back. And I think the same was true of incarcerating the Japanese Americans. Doesn't excuse it for a minute. It doesn't make it right. But uh, that was the climate in which the uh, Roosevelt was operating. Now, on page 460 of the book, you quote, uh, there's a very famous quotation, Roosevelt stating uh, to Churchill, uh, quote, personally, I personally can handle Stalin better than either your foreign office or my State Department, unquote. Isn't this statement um, 
the height of hubris as well as being profoundly mistaken? Yes. Yes. Well, of course, <laughs> he had a lot of hubris, and uh, he was someone who, by that point, had a huge confidence in himself. After all, he had overcome his disability. He had uh, been elected for the only time in American history to three terms, and uh, uh, so there was a kind of arrogance almost, you see. But there was also the sense of reality that Stalin was very distrustful of uh, Churchill, who had been, of course, a, a fierce anti-communist, you see. And uh, so Roosevelt was playing that uh, that card and uh, was telling Churchill, leave it to me. And of course, he uh, over-promised and uh, uh, didn't quite understand the extent to which Stalin was uh, totally ruthless and uh, ready to, and you know, at Yalta they had this uh, agreement on East, Eastern Europe that uh, the Soviets signed that uh, they would allow for self-determination in all those countries that they freed from uh, the Nazi occupation which, of course, was uh, nothing but a, uh, a lie. And, uh, uh, and Roosevelt was hoping that uh, it could be true. So there was a certain naivete about him and a certain arrogance that uh, uh, misled him. But I think if he had lived, <clears throat> we would have gotten into the Cold War with the Soviets more quickly than Harry Truman was able to do that. Because Truman lived in the shadow of FDR, and people kept thinking that, oh, you know, if Roosevelt had lived, he would have gotten along with Stalin, which is nonsense that uh, Stalin was intent on uh, dominating East Central Europe. And I think Roosevelt, and you read his uh, closing letters to Churchill, he was suspicious of them and uh, in private, and uh, I think... He would have had the credentials to say to the public, look, you know how hard we tried to get along and I tried to get along with Stalin. Now we have to take a, a tougher stand. But, you know, this is counterfactual history. Uh, we'll never know what, exactly what would have happened, of course. Overall, what is your assessment of Roosevelt's performance at Yalta? Well, I think he was indeed a dying man as uh uh, Churchill's physician, Lord Moran, said uh, the president is suffering from uh, 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 hardening of the arteries of the brain. He'll be dead in three months' time. And they called it exactly right, because that was February and Roosevelt died on April 12th. And, uh, uh, but nevertheless, <clears throat> what he did at Yalta was, I think, long he had been doing all along, present a face of uh, 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 a congratulatory face of uh, imminent victory and of uh, cooperation. And uh, But remember, he was the great pragmatist, and uh, I think he could have turned on a dime, as uh, at least with the public, which, of course, would have been much readier to uh, confront Stalin uh, because of their unhappiness over uh, his actions in occupying uh, Poland and other Eastern European countries. Uh, what would you say is the overall significance of Roosevelt's career in politics? Well, I would say overall it was uh, he, he made a great difference and uh, the United States changed dramatically uh, during his period of leadership, uh, he created the welfare state that uh, exists to this day, and uh, we'll never get rid of it uh, as long as we have any kind of uh, democratic republic in which uh, the mass of people have uh, uh, voting rights and a say in how their government uh, governs. And he also presided over the transformation of the country from isolationism to internationalism. And so, you know, these two great transformations that uh, we live with to this day, that now, you know, we have a current administration that is reverting to <clears throat> the America first and the isolationism in some ways in the 1930s, of course, there can only be so much rollback 
uh, of this and uh, uh, so much return to economic nationalism with these uh, potential tariff wars. And uh, and I am of a mind to believe that uh, Donald Trump is a uh, a passing phenomenon, something of a wrecking crew, no doubt about it. I don't discount the fact that he's going to have uh, uh, an impact on the country, and especially now with uh, potential to uh, make the Supreme Court for decades to come a uh, an instrument of uh, a conservative outlook. But um, we will see. Uh, as I said before, the only constant in history is change. And uh, and my friend Arthur Schlesinger talked about the uh, uh, transformations and the cycles of American history. We go from conservative to liberal, back to conservative, back to liberal. And uh, we will see what uh, what happens. If you wish for people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? <clears throat> oh, I'll joke and say that I'm a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think to understand uh, the importance of Roosevelt in uh, our current world and the extent to which uh, he shaped uh, America in the second half of the 20th century and in the opening years now of the 21st century. See, and, uh, you know, presidential reputations go up and they go down. It's like the stock market. And uh, you see this with Harry Truman. When he left office, he had a 32% approval rating. And uh, uh, now he's seen as one of the near great presidents of American history. And some polls rank him as the sixth greatest president in the country's history. So, you know, uh, and of course, John Kennedy is seen as uh, a great president and the greatest of the last uh, 50 years or whatever, but uh, that'll change too. And uh, it's hard to believe Kennedy's reputation will uh, continue to uh, remain so high. And uh, of course, when somebody else comes along who seems as charismatic and uh, uh, appealing as Kennedy remains uh, in the public view, uh, that'll diminish Kennedy's uh, uh, standing. But for the moment, I would say that uh, it's not the Roosevelt's, it's not the Bushes, it's the Kennedys who are America's royal family. And that, I think, will uh, continue for the time being. Professor, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and uh, good luck with your podcast. Thank you. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks very much for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Bye-bye.